You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. From the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Great, thanks, Tracy. Good morning, everybody. Um, the theme of today's talk, as, as Leanne said, is the last in our series on theories of the atonement on the cross. And most people are going to say, why on earth would you spend any of your time talking about theories of atonement? What is atonement? And who cares about theories? And what difference does it actually make to the struggle that I'm in in my life? The way I live, the relationships I've got with my friends and my family and people at work. The problem with Christianity is it's all about words and theories and it makes little difference. The reality is that what we believe about the cross, because when we talk about the atonement, that's a, that's a word for what was happening on the cross when Jesus died. The reality is that what we believe about what was going on when Jesus died on the cross turns out in the end to be for Christians what they believe about who God is and what kind of God there is, what kind of universe we live in. And what we believe in the end always links through, leaks through in our attitudes, in the way we speak to one another in the way we think of other people with views and attitudes that are different to ours. So what we believe about the atonement, it turns out, as I hope to prove to you in the, with just the next couple of slides, makes all the difference to the kind of people we are in the end. Whilst I was thinking about, I was going to say this morning, um, yesterday, I just happened to... Um, I just happened to look at Twitter because I'm being harangued on Twitter uh, endlessly by all sorts of people. And uh, sometimes you just think, oh, I'll have a look at what they're saying about me. 
And, um, <clears throat> but I found, I, I found this instantly without really searching for it. I promise you I wasn't searching for this. It's got nothing to do with me at all. This is what I found. This tweet. This tweet is from Nick Adams, who informs us is an alpha male. <laughs> There's a man with a problem in that first place, isn't there? And this is what Nick uh, says. I'm not comparing President Trump to Jesus Christ, but it's interesting to note <coughs> that both men were arrested <coughs> under false pretenses roughly one week before Easter. Food for thought. There you go. Now, this caused some various reactions, and here, here are just three of them replying to him. Yeah. Uh, Coach Eric says, President Trump was sent by God himself to save America, so it makes a lot of sense that there are similarities. Obviously, it's really the heart of the message of Easter, isn't it? when you stop and think about it. Um, and then we have other replies. I was just having this same discussion with a priest. He plans to incorporate it into his Easter sermon. There you go, Donald pumps, pop, pops up out of the tomb. And lastly, I stand with Trump and I kneel before Jesus Christ. Difficult to do at the same time. <laughs> In all sorts of ways, I would have thought. What we believe about the cross, and therefore who God is, determines a whole lot about the way we see the world and negotiate the world. I was um, uh, having a meal with um, Jill, um, and Dave Parr and a friend of ours uh, from the States uh, not the, the week, a week or so ago and uh, we were just talking together about constantly being attacked by people um, which this week has been my experience again what I did this week is I, I hope stood up for the trans community and um, I was interviewed on Radio 4, and I was just, Philip was just talking to me earlier. It has caused like a huge eruption because I realise that you can stand up now, perhaps in some places, for the L, G, and B community or people, but to stand up for trans people is a whole new level of hatred just poured down on, on your head. Anyway, um, right. uh, coming out of this, just this morning, as I was saying to Philip, both the presenters of the Today programme, which I was on, Nick Robinson and um, um, Justin Webb, have both privately been in touch with me to have a conversation. Because this is just such a huge issue. How we present ourselves at the, as the church in all of these conversations is in the end to do with who we believe God is. And on our wall is a cross. 
on the wall of every church stands a cross. So what we believe about what was happening on that cross is in the end what we believe about God. And what we believe about God shapes us. Here is a picture of Andrew Tate who tells us that he was a very committed Christian but in the last week, few weeks has become a very committed Muslim. But what he believes about God translates into the way he speaks to the impact that he has on vulnerable children across this country. What we believe about God, we end up believing about ourselves, or perhaps it's what we believe about ourselves that shapes our view of God. But what we believe, in the end, comes through in our attitudes. It leaks out of who we are all of the time. This misogynistic, macho, aggressive view of God is not new. This is a picture. There are no photographs. <laughs> of Zeus. Zeus was the, the king of the gods of the Greeks. Zeus, the king of the gods of the Greeks, was a god of power. And so the Greeks formed themselves in the image of their gods and particularly of Zeus. Alexander the Great, who constantly gets honoured as an incredible leader, shaped himself around his, his understanding of Zeus. The only difference between Alexander the Great, the conquering hero of history, and Hitler is a matter of time, is matter of time. Alexander the Great was a power-crazed um, psychopath who some of you will know by the age of 37 was dead. He complained in his early 30s that there were no more worlds to conquer. He conquered and slaughtered and butchered as he marched halfway across the known world then because of the God he believed in. It's an interesting thing, actually, getting a bit technical, that the great Aristotle was his personal teacher uh, for four years as a, what we'd call now a teenager. Aristotle taught him virtues, but the virtues that he was taught were the virtues of the Greek gods. Power, control. What we believe about God really shapes who we are. So, as Leanne said, my job is to talk about the theory of the cross, which is called Christus Victor. That's absolute true. And what I'm going to talk about is called Christus Victor. But I won't talk about that term very much at all. But what I will talk about is the reality of that. It's Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, there could be no better a day, I think, in the year's calendar to talk about 
what the scholars call Christus Victor, which I believe, you must decide for yourself, is a much more liberating and empowering way of thinking about the cross and therefore who God is. When Jill and I were having that meal, we were talking together uh, with our friend from the States about the kind of Christian that always puts you down. Do you know? So, you know, in my life, the number of times I'm told in a week via social media or sometimes letters, etc., emails, that I am going to burn and go to hell. I mean, you know, I can't count. In fact, I don't bother. You know, I just feel like the, the number of times in any one seven days that that happens to me is extraordinary. But here's the thing. We were joking together about it. You can't fight back, can you? I don't want to say to him, I'm not going to hell, you are. <laughs> God hates you. You're going to die and burn because I just don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe these people are going to end up in hell and die and burn and be cursed. I believe that God is a God of love who's forgiven me my many trespasses along the way, my ignorances, my all quick to judge others nature, who slowly led me to see hopefully a little bit more deeply and a little bit more compassionately and I understand that we're all on a journey in that sense aren't we and what I believe and understand and hopefully the way I see God today and therefore who I am and my task on earth is a little bit a smidgen more enlightened than it was five years ago or ten years ago and therefore, to look at someone who, who hasn't perhaps lived as long or hasn't got as far or perhaps their life experiences haven't given them the opportunity to see these things yet and to look down on them and to judge them is a ridiculous thing to do, isn't it? Because I myself am still struggling and in five years hence, I hope that I would have grown again and see the world more compassionately and with more of the love of Christ and more of his care than I do at the moment. Who in this room right now hasn't developed in their understanding of life, their worldview and their understanding of what it means to follow Christ in the last five years? Who in this room would still cling to exactly the same things as they believed five years ago? Who in this room is hoping that in five years' time you'll be stuck exactly where you are right now still? Who's not praying for growth and enlightenment and seeing deeper? So we're all on, a, we're all on this journey together. I often, uh, one of the things I, I was criticised about uh, uh, around this, uh, I forget which morning of the week it was, um, but anyway, I, I, I did this thing. The other criticism you get from Christians is, you were on this thing and you didn't mention the second coming. You know, like, or, or you didn't mention Jesus, or you didn't mention the Bible, or you didn't, I mean, it happens all the time, I'm telling you, you know. You didn't do that. And the point is this. The point isn't 
always to point to the light. It's to point to what you can see because of the light. Isn't it? It's not always to say, well, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and do you know about his death on the cross? The point is, because of what we've learned to become the kind of people who see more in the light of who we understand God to be and to be witnesses to those truths and to engage in those discussions. At whatever level we're involved in life, as neighbours, as friends, as family members, some of you here serving in commu your communities as school governors and local councillors, fantastic roles in which to serve and in which to bring light. Jesus called his disciples together. This is in, uh, Trissy read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21 the story of Palm Sunday, the story of today. But in the chapter before, right at the end, in the closing verses of the chapter before, so this is linked to the Palm Sunday service, service, story. Problem is, because we divided the Bible up into uh, chapters, you know, there's kind of, well, that's that chapter, and that was about that, and this chapter is about that. Charles Spurgeon, you know, that very uh, famous Baptist minister once said, he said, whoever put the chapters divisions into the Bible was a very drunk man on a very dark night. <laughs> because they, they, they just, they obliterate the truth as often as they reveal the truth. Jesus called his disciples together and he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a few weeks' time, Charles will be anointed as king. As Charles is anointed as king in this country, there'll be another Twitter storm, won't there? People who think he shouldn't spend money on this kind of thing, people who think he's a terrible person, people who point to the fall apart of his marriage um, with Diana, his role in that, people who point to all sorts of things about him. Whatever all those truths are, first of all, we're all on a journey in life. And if you judge Charles by everything he did in his 20s, we're all stuck, aren't we? Because if I'm judged by everything I did in my 20s and 30s, you wouldn't like me. Perhaps don't like me anyway, but there you go. But here is a person at the age of 74 who, without doubt, isn't the man that he was at 34. Just like you and I. So the first thing is to extend a generosity to others that we hope is extended to us. Psychologists talk about a theory, perhaps I've mentioned it before, it's called false attribution theory. You should study it. 
well, don't study it, it'd take a long time. But what false attribution theory means is this. They always give fancy names to things, don't they? But false attribution theory is simply this. If my marriage goes wrong, well, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, and it was to do with all these other factors. If, if I lose my temper, it's to do with these things. If things break down in my life, it's because I've had a hard time. I've not been understood. Stuff has gone wrong for me. But stuff in your life, if that goes wrong, it's because you're a bad person. We always see the world from our point of view, doesn't I? I know I was a bit short with him or her, but I'd had a tough day. I hadn't had a coffee on time. I was a bit frazzled. You know, I'd been working for 10 hours straight. What do you expect? But when others behave in a way that we disapprove of, we don't find any space for them. But the second thing, reason I put Charles's picture up is because he will become king at the beginning of May. And for him, he has to decide, as I'm sure he's thinking very deeply about, what kind of king will he be? Whether you're a monarchist or not, whether Charles in a, is a monarchist or not, do you get the point? It's his lot in life. Whatever he believes about the past and the development of the monarchy and about slavery and about the acquirement of wealth, whatever he knows about that, and what we do know is he's a deep-thinking, deep-questioning person, he has to fulfill this role. So he must sit down and say to himself, what kind of king do I want to be? Here's a picture of another king. We've already mentioned him. This is a statue, it's a bit dirty, of, um, this is a statue of Alexander the Great. And it's a statue of him riding into Jerusalem. 300 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, about 320 years, um, Alexander the Great had, ri had ridden into the city. And he came into the city on a white stallion a war horse. He rode through the city in triumph, having encompassed it into his forever-growing empire. He was the all-powerful one, the megalomaniac, conquering worlds. 300 years later, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and Leanne has talked lots about that. But let's um, read this again, the reading that Trissy read to us. As they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, he's just told them that if you want to lead, you must serve. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied up there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. That was Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, 
See your king comes to you gently and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did what Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while other uh, others cut branches from the trees to spread them across the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, you probably know, means save us. It was a cry. Save us, save us, save us, save us. That's our cry to the son of David. And the question for you and for me is what will save us? I'm not talking about beyond death. I'm talking about here and now. How will we become the best people we can be? How will we be shaped? We think about the Good Friday story, Palm Sunday and the story of Good Friday coming up in just a few days' time as Jesus' death on the cross as one event. And so we ask ourselves, how do we make sense of this event on the cross? What are our theories of atonement? And I speak at the end of a series of of those talks, looking at the cross from different ways. The cross is, is so deep, you can't sum it, and what happens there is so deep, you can't sum it up in one go. Cornelia and I, the other Sunday afternoon, went to see a, a Van Gogh exhibition, uh, which crossing Hackney. Was it Hackney where we went? Well, it wasn't Hackney. Well, Cornelia led me. I, would, I just finished here, and I just went where I was told. But we got into this kind of old warehouse which was fantastic for, for the Van Gogh exhibition. And uh, the more you look at the pictures of this great artist, the more you see. The more you linger, the more you grasp. Walk past one of his paintings in a hurry and you go, oh, well, I was looking at the picture, the starry night picture. And you just see, oh, it's just some houses and some stars. Stop and ponder, and in my case, I have to read the commentary as well because I'm so thick, I have to take you know, soak in what others are saying. You suddenly begin to grasp that what's represented here is enough for me to go away and ponder on for weeks to come and be deepened and strengthened by. The more that we see the cross, the more that we ponder on the cross, the deeper we see. So I know, for instance, just because I'm looking at her, Lillian talked about the cross and example. And the New Testament talks about that too. If anyone would come after me, said Jesus, he must deny himself or herself and take up their cross and follow me. The cross is about example. It's about the way I live. There are some things that don't fit well into that picture. It's like taking a Van Gogh picture with all its beautiful color and just slashing some black marks through it. And what Nath talked about last week, penal substitution. And I, I, I was outside, so I didn't get to hear everything that Nath said, or anything he'd said, actually, because I was on door duty 
but I know that Nath would have talked about the problem with this view that's become seen as the normal way of thinking about the cross. Jesus hangs on the cross until the wrath of an angry God is satisfied. We even sing all that crap. It is crap. Because God is a God who is love. He's not an angry monster waiting to get us, but because he can get the blood of his son instead, he can let us off. People often tell you, won't they, that God is love, but he's also just. And his justice requires punishment of someone. And because he punished Jesus, he's able to forgive us, but only if we pray the prayer. Last time I heard that was on the radio this morning. It's a very popular view. But it doesn't chime with the rest. It's not about a God of love. I've got four children. And two of them I can see sat right there. You know, we used to have a shed at the bottom of our garden when they were growing up. Um, we had this shed that I'd built, actually, I think. Yeah, did I? I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> it was falling down. That's the thing. So sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes when you've got children, you love your children, don't you? But there's sometimes they do some silly stuff, don't they, children? But you don't say, well, I love you, but I am also just. So I require to banish you to the shed at the end of the garden where you will live for eternity unless you pray a prayer of repentance. And I will curse you with eternal fire. So you're always dying but never die. How can you possibly square that with a God who Jesus says is a loving father? So don't sing those words again, even if you like the tune, because it's a lie. And all that goes with it. And it pronounced judgment and curse over people. But the point about the cross is this, when you've looked at all the ways of understanding it, the real mistake that we make is about the chapter divisions again. It's back to Charles Spurgeon. Because we divide it up. This Sunday, we talk about Palm Sunday. And get that out of the way. On Friday, we get to the crucifixion, the cross. And we get that out of the way. And then we move on to Easter Sunday, which is in a different chapter. And it's about the resurrection. And these are different events in different chapters with firewalls between them. And that's why we never grasp. It's one event. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey deliberately. It wasn't just the kind of thing that he did. He knew that the Old Testament Zechariah, which is quoted in Matthew, said, your king will come to you on a donkey. But no one believed it because Alexander the Great had ridden in on a white stallion, a war horse. So Jesus deliberately chooses a donkey because he's saying something about what he believes leadership is. And I think, my surmising here, as Jesus makes this choice, he's remembering back to three years earlier when he sat in a desert and he had to work out the kind of leader he would be then. And he was tempted with all sorts of uh, styles of leadership, power, control, you know, wonders. He was tempted with being a superstar leader and he had to say, no, 
I won't do any of that. I'm going to tread the pathway of servanthood. And here again, as he, before he rides into Jerusalem, he deliberately chooses to ride on a donkey, not just as a message to everyone else, but I believe, me surmising, discuss it as a reminder to himself about who he was at the beginning of a week that he knew was going to be a lot worse than anybody's Twitter storm ever has been and would end in the authorities laying into him and taking him on and probably killing him. He rides on a donkey because he's committed to that. So as I kind of end, I simply want to ask you some questions. Um, I've just finished writing a book, and in the last chapter of the book, I talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do, do you all know what that is? Yeah? You know, so Maslow, Abraham Maslow, great psychologist, American Jewish psychologist, um, uh, he says, he says, I mean, this has become accepted everywhere, that we have basic needs, the need for food, you know, and water, etc., etc. And then going up that hierarchy, once we've got that shelter, then there are other needs we have for love and family and attention and belonging. And then, as all those needs are met, at the top of his triangle of needs, there were five levels of needs, sat what, what he called, um, uh, he called, what did he call it, self-fulfillment. No, he didn't. <laughs> Self-actualization, you're right. You see, that's the trouble with my brain, you know, it's kind of wonky. Uh, Self-actualization. I've just written a book about it. There you go. You can. <laughs> I can tell you when he died, though. Do you know when he died? Do you know where he died? He died on a run in Central Park. Yeah, he had a heart attack in the 70s. There you go. Be careful when you go running. <laughs> so, um, Self-actualization. But here's the thing. In the last years of his life, before the heart attack in Central Park, um, in the last years of his life, Abraham Maslow rejected his triangle, his hierarchy altogether. And he said self-actualization wasn't the fulfillment of life. He'd met people who were very self-actualized. Do you think Donald Trump is self-actualized? It's just a smidgen of chance that he might be, if you see what I mean. Self-actualization, Abraham Maslow came to understand, wasn't what life is about. And so he invented a new category called self-transcendence. He wrote about it in the last few years of his life. Self-transcendence, which he described as the spiritual moment when you're lifted beyond yourself. He described it as awakening. The moment of awakening when you lifted out of your own ambitions and you realized that your life is there to serve others. Self-transcendence. The moment of awakening. The moment of dawning when you wake up to who you are. And Jesus, I believe, before he rides into Jerusalem, has another moment of awakening. Because he has to. 
he has to sit there and say to himself, when he said to his disciples, in the words that we read before the words of Palm Sunday, those of you who want to lead must become servants. And those who aim to be greatest must become the servants of all. Who was he talking to? Was he talking to his disciples? Or was he reminding himself or doing both? And so he gets on his donkey as a symbol and a reminder of all that he believes about who God is. And that's why it's important that the story of Palm Sunday and the story of his day of crucifixion and the story that we celebrate next Sunday, the resurrection, are all one, all one together. Because the message is simply this. You win looking like you're losing sometimes. You win when you soak it up, but you don't dish it out. You win when you don't return the blow for another blow, but you return the blow with an act of generosity to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Not because you're weak and you're pressed down and you're in servitude. That's never a good reason. But because you're strong, because you know who you are, because you know that you are loved by God, because you know that you are chosen because God chooses us. And so you choose to act in line with what you believe about the cross and the resurrection. The message that, from Jesus, you can trust me. They may take everything you have. They may strip you naked. They may take away your dignity. They may do you down. They may even crucify you. In our lives, it will only be verbally, won't it? They can even crucify you. But here's the truth. Love conquers everything. And Easter Sunday comes and brings resurrection. Trust me, is saying Jesus. Understand this is what the cross is about and walk this way. You win looking like you're losing. You win serving. We're going to pause in a moment and leave a time for reflection on this for ourselves. What does it mean for us? What does this great principle mean for our country? What does it mean for our foreign policy? What does it mean for the way that we respond to asylum seekers and refugees? What does it mean for our housing policy? What does this mean for our education, curriculum and pedagogy? What does it mean for the way we regulate schools? What does it mean in terms of relative wealth and poverty in our country? What does it mean for as we begin to move towards a general election, how everybody listens to everybody without dissing them constantly? What does it mean for how we hold a respectful societal conversation about who we are instead of slagging people off? 
What does it mean for the Metropolitan Police? What does it mean for the way I am with my next door neighbour who's just lost his wife? What does it mean? Let's pause. Let's think about this. And I hand back to Leanne. I read some advice on this a while ago and it sort of it was something like um, if it looks like God and it smells like God then it probably is so look a bit more um, and if it doesn't look like God or smell like God then it probably isn't so look elsewhere and that phrase Steve used you win looking like you're losing that does certainly sound like God when you soak it up when you could retaliate, when you live generously, when you could stay in fear of not having enough. And this is a good week, isn't it, to spend some time figuring out how we're supposed to live in line with what we think about the cross and the resurrection. We can do that any time, but this week's a good one. Acting in line with what you believe about it. And winning like we look like we're losing. Some thoughts to go into the week with.